You're listening to Let's Talk AI. Okay, welcome to Let's Talk AI. Today's guest is Edith Law. Edith is an associate professor in the Cheriton School of Computer Science. Welcome, Edith. Thank you, Harold. So, um, Edith, we're just going to jump in and understand a little bit of your background and, you know, why AI? Where did you start and study and how did you end up at Waterloo? So why don't you just give us some insights, if you don't mind? Uh, I guess I, I have always uh, been interested in both human and uh, artificial intelligence. Uh, when I was an undergraduate student, I actually did a minor in psychology because I was really interested in human intelligence more than maybe you know, artificial intelligence at that point. Um, and uh, I, in fact, I was very interested in emotion emotional intelligence, like how emotion factor into intelligence. Uh, so I ended up doing a master's at McGill on reinforcement learning. Uh, but then when I arrived at uh, my PhD, um, I started doing more work related to human computer, computer interaction, in particular, uh, this idea of uh, human computation. How do you, you know, build systems that can engage people over the internet to provide small amount of contributions? And then how do you combine those contributions with machine intelligence to solve some of the problems at that time that was really difficult to solve? Could you give us some insight? What, what kind of problems, as you say, or what were we trying to solve with that? Well, at that time, well, when I did that research, that was about, I think, 10, 15 years ago now, right? And the internet was very immature, <laughs> right? We didn't have... Um, well-labeled data. Uh, so at that time from, and we didn't have deep learning at that time, right? So a lot of the machine learning that was in place at that time was uh, supervised learning, which require a large number of labels. Um, and so, you know, if you, if you search for an image at that, you know, with a search engine at that point, if you type in the word dog, you know, you would get hot dog and real dogs and Snoop dogs. And, you know, like you, you would have kind of like huge amount of confusion because they just, they just look things up by file names. Right. Um, and so the idea of human computation at that time was to, uh, you know, develop games or, you know, mechanism that engage people to, to generate labeled data for machine learning. Okay. Um, so I've gone through your profile and, and, Seems to be a repeated message is this area of human machine partnership. Can you talk to us what that from your from your words, your your eyes, what does that mean? Um, so my lab, actually, I, I, I struggled to name my lab for a long time. Because I was working in human computation and crowdsourcing, I called it crowd lab, and then it wasn't quite fitting right with what I think I would want to do. Uh, and now I call my lab Augmented Intelligence Lab um, because what I'm really interested in is how human intelligence can augment machine intelligence. And so it, it fits with the kind of human computation crowdsourcing theme of work where we're really trying to embed human intelligence into machine learning. But then I'm also interested in how artificial intelligence can enhance human intelligence. So, so not just one way, but both ways. Um, and so I think when I talk about maybe 
human machine partnership, I'm really talking about kind of going both ways, like human augmenting machine machine intelligence and machine intelligence augmenting human intelligence. Okay. Can you give us an example uh, of each one of those? So, you know, how we're helping the machine and how the machine's helping us. So you talked about labeled data, for instance. Well, of course, that's how we're helping the machines. We're giving it a little more focus to what it understands. Is there a... Is there an example of the other way? I'm recently interested in uh, developing social computing systems where people can work on a collaborative task. These tasks can can be something like annotating a map together or creating a concert program together or teaching a machine learning algorithm together. Uh, I'm interested in helping people discover their values and articulate the values and negotiate the values with one another within these social computing systems. So I am imagining, for example, that people are making these small edits on the map. Maybe they're planning a town or something. And and they're making these edits because they're expressing the preferences and what they think is the right layout of the town. Um, But they may not fully understand why they are doing that. Like they might not understand what is driving them to make these edits. And so, you know, we can use artificial intelligence, for example, to to track people's behavior over time and reflect back to them, you know, this is your annotation behavior. You know, these are your biases. This is how your annotations differ from other people's annotations. Um, and in that way, we can help them reflect on their values and actually develop or generate like a product that uh, maybe the whole group is happy with. And you talk about planning towns of the future. I think about this a lot, big push to smart cities. So do, do you have any involvement with any of those kind of thoughts or ideas in, in, in any of your tasks? I mean, I'm definitely interested in those kind of applications. Uh, there are these... I'm made aware of this, this initiative called 15 Minute Neighborhoods, where you know, people are thinking about developing or designing towns where people can walk everywhere, where you can reduce traffic and noise and you know, environmentally friendly and so on. Um, so I'll, I'll be, I love to you know, work with, for example, the government agency and you know, it could be a really interesting platform for uh, engaging the public and urban planners and government officials all in the all doing the same task together and understanding each other's values. Um, uh, really leveling the playing field, right? And and so like the similar, I can think of similar applications uh, that can enable. M- people that are normally at different power level to come together. So another project that I'm doing right now is uh, looking at how we can democratize classical music making. So traditionally ensembles, music ensembles, for example, um, there are the music director chooses the music, you know, hand it down to the musicians and the musicians play it and, no questions asked about the programming or the choice of songs and so on. Um, so what if we can have these kind of social computing system that you know use AI to help people understand their preferences and values 
Uh, and what if we can engage, you know, music directors and musicians and audience together to co-create a concert program together? So that it's not just a one-directional thing, but it's a very collaborative process. Um, so maybe maybe the general theme is to kind of leveraging AI to uh, to change the way we collaborate, uh, change the way we live. Um, so that that's that's a, I think that's the direction of like using AI to enhance human intelligence. Yeah, you know, if you just when you say it like this, I, I think about the internet. We go in, we put in our search words, we get a response back. Well, we don't get to push the other way. We don't get to push in, like you say, the feedback or the values or things that are important to it. So this may be this idea of social computing. Is this an area? Is there others here at Waterloo working on this? Are you driving this initiative? Uh, I think right now it's, it's just me. I mean, the HCI group is uh, quite broad. We have experts in information visualization. We have uh, experts in kind of novel input devices. Um, and actually, a lot of um, the work of the other HCI colleagues, my HCI colleagues, also use a lot of artificial intelligence in their work, in particular computer vision. Um, so I think I think there's a really nice synergy between HCI and AI, and it's often not leveraged enough. Okay, I'm going to come back to some words you said uh, a few minutes ago about human values. You talk about you know planning and building communities and things. Do you feel there's uh, any that are not being addressed today, thus driving the need to open our ears and listen to what others have to say? Is there certain values we're missing, if you want to call it, that this new approach would help capture? Uh, I, I'm not really sure if uh, there's any missing value per se, but uh, I can talk about one maybe what I consider to be value, but maybe it's not the right word for it. But I, I do study uh, this concept of uh, curiosity a lot uh, in my research. So um, there are many psychological theories of curiosity. It, uh, basically, it's the idea that there are things we know and there are things we want to know. And if there's a gap between what we want to know and what we know, we are curious and we look for information to fill that gap. Uh, and I think what I, why I say that is kind of like a value. Um, when I say value, I really just mean what is important to people or what is important to you morally. Um, is that I think curiosity is very important for self-understanding and tolerance of others. So, you know, if, if you don't have curiosity, you would not even tr try to understand what you're missing, right? Like what, do you, what your misconceptions are, what your biases are. If you don't have curiosity about others, then you make assumptions about them and you, um, you may assume certain things about them. Uh, and so that, that often causes a lot of misunderstanding, right? a lot of rigidness in our relationships. So I think, uh, and, and I, in my work, I actually have done uh, quite a few pieces of work looking at how, how to elicit curiosity, uh, how curiosity function in 
human-robot interaction. And I guess uh, in the new type of like, you know, social computing for human values work that I'm doing, I'm also interested in how curiosity help people articulate and negotiate values with each other. The way you use curiosity there, human-robot interactions. Could you elaborate a bit more on that? Like, is it the curiosity from the human about what's this robot? How do I work with them? Or how, how does the curiosity mm -hmm. get Yeah, in? so I, I, there was one study that I did was really fun. Uh, it was with some graduate student. I started as a course project, actually. Um, and uh, the students designed a robot that, a recycling robot that uh, where you can show it an object and then it will recognize, try to recognize what that object is and determine whether it's recyclable or not. And so we were using that as a kind of a case study to look at how surprises that the, the robot uh, give people would make them engage more or less with it. Uh, and and so like I, I want to say that this is also like a Wizard of Oz system. It's not real AI. It was new, not real object recognition. In fact, the object recognition was was done through I think a crowd crowdsourcing, right? Like it was it would it would send a message. Uh, the robot would send the image to a real person who would then you know type in an answer. Right? And what we do is we manipulate the answer uh, so that is very accurate and detailed. Uh, some of the times. Uh, so that is our surprise, high surprise condition. So instead of saying this is a, you know, a headphone, it would say this is a Sennhauser headphone, you know, <laughs> with a particular number or something. Or instead of saying glasses, it would say this is a very stylish pair of glasses. You know, something that like you, you don't quite expect the robot to give like you know answers that are highly detailed or like too descriptive um and then a low surprise condition is kind of just like typical words like uh, this is a ball or this is a pencil something um and so uh and then so people can give these object one at a time and they can stop whenever they want. And we want to know how long they engage with this robot. You know, what kind of objects do they show? And we find that with the high surprise condition, people are very curious about the robot because they were surprised by the answer that the robot gave. And some, so some people even went outside of the room to get objects, right? And they would take off their shoe and put it on <laughs> in front of the robot. Uh, sometimes they would do things like they'll they would take a piece of paper and they give it to a robot and the robot said, oh, this is a French uh, text or something. So then they, they're like, okay, I'll crumble it up and then put it back and see what it says. Or I'll cover it in some ways and see what it says. Um, and even though we tell them like you can only put one object, sometimes they would do things like I will put multiple objects and just see what it says. So I think there's like this idea of curiosity with AI that involves uh, people tinkering with it to see what it would do. And you can see that with the, the whole chat GPT phenomenon right now, is that people are tinkering with it, right? They're like, what can I say? What can I say to it? And what would it say back? And I think it has a lot to do with curiosity. And um, so the question is more like, you know, 
know, do we want to somehow maintain this curiosity or make people aware that the curiosity is actually making them believe or engage with the AI too much? Or like, you know, <laughs> what are the what is the pros and cons of having cur- this kind of curiosity about AI? Have you explored um, age bias with respect to curiosity? Is it and like you talk about engagement with the robot, is it? Is there any results which show the younger generation easier to engage? And and I'm just curious, anything on age bias? Uh, I'm not sure about age, but definitely kind of your technical background, like your your familiarity with the AI technology plays a role in how curious you are about it. Um, I think if, and you're curious about it in different ways too, it's not just like how much. So the people who don't know much about AI or something, they would just believe it, right? And so they are naturally curious about that. But then also people who have some knowledge about AI, they would also make other, they will have other kinds of expectations about it. Um, For example, I think this one participant, this, you know, some participant when, when there was a stapler, a black stapler on under the camera, uh, some participant said that the robot's response is not surprising because it's an easy object to detect, right? But then there's there's this one participant that has computer vision background. He said this object is difficult to recognize because black is you know is black against black background. <laughs> so he was using his knowledge to kind of infer whether the AI's response is really surprising or not, or whether the task is difficult or not. And so I think your like your your preconception or your knowledge about the technology itself can influence how curious you are about it. You know, it's interesting. We hired uh, we hire co-op students typically as part of uh, to work with Waterloo AI. And many of them have confessed that their preconception of you mix the words AI and robot, they think of Terminator movie. So you wonder how much of our movies and social media, you know, in the past have created, I won't say a fear, but, you know, some hesitancy of, oh, robots, you know, I better keep a distance. I don't know what they're about. Do you see any of that fear kind of under underlying or, or is that what's changing the curiosity or the engagement? I don't really see that much in my studies. Um, yeah, what what surprises me is that, you know, we do run a lot of Wizard of Oz study where it's not a real AI, but it's a simulated AI, right? So I have other experiments where we had participants playing a rock and minerals game with a humanoid robot. Uh, we were also studying curiosity and get that case. We, uh, we were trying to have the the robot a curiosity and see if that curiosity transferred to the participants. Uh, but it was completely the robot was completely operated by a human, right? But almost every student that came in didn't know, like they didn't they didn't know that it was operated by a human, and they just assumed that that's how it works, and it works really well. <laughs> um, and uh, I don't think that I don't think that there was any, yeah. I mean, but this is a context of you know the studies that I'm running and the age group and the tasks that we're doing, which are 
kind of more fun and educational, right? Uh, so I can imagine in other situations where, you know, you're talking about AI replacing jobs and, you know, in uh, more critical roles like, you know, medical decision making and so on. I think there there's a real question of what the role of AI should be um, and how people really want it to be part of their job. So the, I, I assume that I, I think people want it to be more of a facilitator and a helper than someone who takes, you know, something that takes over right. and what I, they're doing. And hopefully those are the paths we're going. You know, I think about the medical community and, and our healthcare workers and probably 75% of their day is taking notes and making good files. So there's follow-up and, you know, shall we say an area maybe they most of them don't enjoy they want to do more of the medical care and, and involvement with the patient so maybe there's some ways to bring automation there that takes away some of the tedious tasks for them so but you know um so looking forward where do you think your research going you see any areas for breakthrough or, or impacts in the future that are going to be profound for us um i'm very excited about this new area of research i'm looking into with technology and for human values um i'm also uh, creating some new courses around that because I, I realize that I'm not, also not an expert in the area and I'm trying to learn. But uh, I have a new graduate course where we're trying to have students imagine a piece of technology and then analyze it through a philosophical, psychological design and AI perspective. So taking kind of a piece of technology that they imagine to exist and kind of look at it from those angles. Um, so I think that that kind of this technology to help to foster um, human values and education initiative that really gets students to think about um, the technology that they're building and what it really means uh, is really important. You may need to go back and watch some uh, Star Trek episodes with the communicators and all the things we had back in the 60s that someone envisioned didn't exist, but uh, look how much has changed our world now. You know, one closing note for you. Um, I think you'd get a round of applause from Leonardo da Vinci on what you're doing because he has nine principles of thinking, and the number one principle for him is curiosity. Everything must start with curiosity. So bravo from Leonardo. Thank you. So, so, well, thanks for being part of our uh, Let's Talk AI today and um, look forward to seeing uh, great things coming out of your lab. Thank you. 